I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 8, if you would. Study that with me this morning. In chapter 7, Paul dealt with the first issue that the Corinthian church had raised to Paul in a letter they'd written to him. There were a number of questions they had that they wanted Paul to address, and so they wrote these questions in a letter and sent it to him. He answered the first one concerning marriage in chapter 7. That occupied the last two weeks of our time. And today we have the second of these issues that they had raised to Paul in this letter they wrote. He identifies the problem for us in verse 1 and again in verse 4. He says in verse 1, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, and then down in verse 4 he says, Concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. Now I don't imagine too many of you had a big problem with that this last week. But uh, in the, in the uh, first century church, this was a, uh, this was a uh, major problem for the early Christians because idolatry and the worship of pagan deities was uh, widely prevalent and widely practiced in the Roman Empire. And just as the Jews did, the Greeks and Romans offered uh, animal sacrifices to their gods. If, if, a, uh, sacrifice, if an offerer came to offer a sacrifice in private, he would present the offering to the priest who would offer part of it, just a token part of it, on the altar as a sacrifice to the god. And then the priest would keep part. He would keep the ribs, the uh, ham, and the left side of the face for some reason. And then the rest of the animal sacrifice would go to the worshiper. Now, often these worshipers, when they would take that, uh, the rest of the sacrifice home with them, they would either uh, use it for their own private meals or they would throw some kind of a banquet with it, invite their friends over, a party of 10 or 12 to come over, or occasionally they would use these in wedding receptions. Oftentimes wedding receptions were held right in these pagan temples. So if a friend of yours, a non-Christian friend of yours, invited you over for dinner, uh, most likely you would eat meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan deity. If you went to a wedding reception, the odds were 99 out of 100 that food that would be served there at the wedding reception would have already been consecrated and dedicated to a pagan deity. Now, Sacrifices were offered in public, too. The uh, priest would take his share, and then the public officials and the magistrates would get what was left over. Now, both the priests and magistrates occasionally had food left over, meat left over, and what they would do is they would sell this meat at a cut rate to uh, meat markets right there in Corinth. And then these meat merchants, in turn, would sell that leftover meat to the populace. In Rome... The problem was even worse because the Romans had some gods that the Greeks didn't have. And, in fact, each Roman household had its own god. And every time they ate a meal, they would dedicate uh, that food to their Roman household god to protect the household, protect their supplies, keep the bad spirits away. So anytime uh, you ate in the home of a friend who was not a Christian, you were liable to eat food that had been dedicated to uh, a pagan god. We've done, uh, or not we, but others have done excavations in the city of Corinth, and we've pretty much uh, laid open the whole uh, downtown section, the shopping center section of Corinth. And there's a main area called the Agora, and that was where all the, that was the Karcher Mall of their day, that's where all the shops were. And ringing this Agora, ringing this marketplace, were, were temples that were dedicated to various of the Corinthian deities. And at the west end was where most of the meat was sold. That's where the concentration of these pagan temples were. In fact, there's one little inscription that's been unearthed 
And all it reads is Lucius the Butcher. Now, I don't know how excited Lucius is to go down in history by that name, but it indicates that this was the common practice, that that's where meat was sold, and the main source of meat were these temples where these, the meat had previously to that been offered to, to pagan idols. Now, this raised a problem for the first century Christians. Can we, as Christians who have now uh, turned our back, we're now a new creation in Christ, are we free to partake of this meat that's been offered to false gods? Are we not encouraging and participating in idolatry to do that? Now, as uh, I mentioned, uh, this is not probably a pressing issue for us today, and yet there are issues very like this that we wrestle with in our, in our society today as believers, and that has to do with issues of behavior over which there's controversy in Christian circles and about which the Scripture simply is silent. Uh, they're sometimes referred to as gray areas or uh, questionable things. Uh, matters of moral uh, indifference. Now, these are areas in which there is debate among Christians as to what is right and what is wrong, and yet the scriptures give us no definitive answer. And if you think about it for a minute, you can think of a long list of issues like this that you probably have faced at one time or another in your Christian experience even now. Uh, the use of alcohol and tobacco is an evident one that a lot of Christians wrestle with today. Uh, how we observe Sunday, do we observe that as the Lord's Day, as kind of a Christian version of the Sabbath, or do we regard all days as equally holy? Um, are we free to wear uh, costume jewelry? Uh, do we wear makeup? Uh, what about TV, uh, movies, uh, public dancing, uh, pool? You know, when I grew up, pool was kind of a baddie, and uh, dice were suspect, and... Uh, and cards were suspect, and square dancing was suspect. You had to play Rook and Old Maid in secret if you didn't want to get in trouble. So just a whole, there's, and you can probably think of others that I haven't even touched on that are, are matters of, uh, of debate among Christians today. And so the issue is, what do we do about these things? How do we resolve these conflicts? What does the Scripture teach us about how to understand this area? And this is precisely the kind of problem that Paul is dealing with here in 1 Corinthians. Now you notice in verse 1 that he says, we know that we all have knowledge. So he refers immediately to some kind of knowledge that uh, Christians should possess in this area. Now, he doesn't explain what that knowledge is until verse 4 through 6. So let's look at that section first before we come back to 1 to 3. Read verses 4 to 6 with me. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols... We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, that is, many people regard them as such, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Okay. Now, Paul's point here simply is that Christians are free to eat meat sacrificed to idols because there is no objective reality to the gods that those idols stand for. Uh, they just don't exist. 
and therefore that meat hasn't been contaminated by any real God. Therefore, Christians are free to eat it. All things are from God, including that meat that's been sacrificed in that pagan temple, and because that meat is from God, it's legitimate for us to partake of it and eat it. That's his point to the Corinthians. Now, I didn't know much about uh, Greek mythology before I started studying this passage, and I don't know a whole lot more now, but uh, I learned a little bit that might be kind of interesting to you. Uh, you notice he says there's two divisions in verse 5. These are so-called gods now. These are, In other words, these are gods in the opinion of the Corinthians, other Corinthians. He says they, they are, whether they are in heaven or on earth. Now, there were two divisions in Greek mythology to, uh, to gods. There were those that dwelt in heaven, or what, what they referred to as Mount Olympus. That was the mountain of the gods. That was their version of heaven, in a sense. And uh, gods such as Zeus or Jupiter dwelt there. Other gods included Neptune or Poseidon, the god of the sea. Pluto, who I'd always thought was invented by Walt Disney, but apparently the Greeks got there first. Apollo. Artemis was one of the goddesses. Uh, she's also known as Diana. And the main temple to uh, Artemis was in, in uh, Ephesus, as you may remember. Paul got into a lot of hot water when he began to preach the gospel in Ephesus because the silversmith trade, they were making little copies of Diana, and the silversmith trade just dried up because everyone was turning to the Lord. And they hit him right in the pocketbook, and they got upset and started a riot, and Paul almost lost his life over Artemis of the Ephesians. Aphrodite was another one, the main temple to uh, Aphrodite in the Greek world was right there in the city of Corinth. She was also known as Venus. Uh, Hermes, or Mercury, if I was him, I would prefer to be known as Mercury instead of Hermes. Uh, and remember in Acts 14, when the apostles, when Paul and Barnabas went to Lystra, uh, the people were so impressed with the ministry that Paul and Barnabas had that they began to refer to Barnabas as Zeus, who was the chief of the Greek gods and began to refer to Paul as uh, Hermes or Mercury, the messenger of the gods, because he was the chief uh, speaker. He was the chief messenger. And so they had believed that they believed that the gods had come down from heaven, from Mount Olympus, and taken up residence among men in the form of Paul and Barnabas. And also Ares was the twelfth of these uh, heavenly deities that the Greeks worshipped. And you'll notice how much pagan mythology has just filtered down into the 20th century without us even realizing it. Uh, for example, the month of January is named after the Roman god Janus. Janus had two faces, one looking forward and one looking backward, so he was a perfect god for the first month of the year. Uh, March was named after the uh, god Mars. That's where the name for the month of March came from. The days of the week... Sunday, for example, it came from the worship of the sun as a god. Monday, from the worship of the moon as a god. Wednesday and Thursday were named after two Norse gods, uh, Woden for Wednesday and Thor, who was their equivalent of Zeus for Thursday. And then uh, Saturday was named after Saturn, which is one of the Roman gods. So you can see how widespread uh, pagan mythology became because it's just filtered down and even has some residue in our culture today. Now, there were gods on earth as well. There were two main ones, Ceres, which is the goddess of corn. We get the word cereal from that god. And also Bacchus, who was the uh, god of the vine. Now, in this use of the word Lord, uh, Paul also may be referring to the fact that by this time, the Caesars were regarded as Lord in a divine sense. And the word Lord meant the supreme ruler on earth. 
And Tiberius, who was the Caesar when Jesus' ministry was conducted, was the first one of the Roman emperors to appropriate for himself this title. And an emperor cult developed around the Caesars. And you may remember that one of the first challenges the early Christians had to face was this question of who is Lord? Is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord? Who is the supreme ruler on earth? Who truly is the divine God manifest in the human flesh? Is it the Caesars, as they claim, or is it Jesus Christ, as the Bible teaches? And, of course, they settled for the fact that Jesus was truly Lord. And this is Paul's point here in verse 6. Even though other people regard these as, di- as divine, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. In other words, the Father is the source of all things. He's the creator. It's from him that all things had their source and their origin. And it says we exist for him. In other words, we're designed for our life to revolve around the life of God, to be wrapped up in the life of God, for our lives to be pleasing to him. That's why Augustine was correct when he says that there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every individual. Or Pascal said that. Anyway, I read that on a Campus Crusade track somewhere. Somebody said that. But they're right that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. And that's because we exist for God. We were made for him. And then he says Jesus Christ was the one by whom all things came into being. So he says that God was the, the Father was the origin of creation and that Jesus was the agent of creation. He's the one that carried out the creative act. It's kind of like, uh, if you ever watched uh, Get Smart, it's similar to that, where Maxwell Smart takes his uh, orders from control, say that's the source, and then he's the agent on the field that carries him out. And in a sense, if you'll pardon the expression, is a picture of the spiritual life, that things have their source, their origin in God. He's the control center. And Jesus is the agent on the field that carries things out. He's the one that makes the grace of God and the power of God and the peace of God uh, available to us and manifests it in us because it says, Paul says, we exist through him by his life, by his presence in us. So Paul says, the scripture teaches us that God has all the bases of life covered. All of reality and life has its origin in God and it's sustained by Jesus in the meantime, and then it has its end in God. See? So the point here is that there just simply isn't any room for pagan gods. God started the process, Jesus Christ sustains it, and then God's the one that wraps it up. So there's no room for pagan gods. If you're in the marketplace, Paul says, for a god, you've only got one choice. There simply aren't any competitors. There's one god, and that's the god that the scriptures reveal. Therefore, his argument is, that we're free to eat this meat that's been sacrificed to idols because there is no Jupiter, there's no Neptune, there isn't any Mercury or Hermes anywhere. There's only one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, you may be asking yourself, what does all this have to do with us living in the 20th century? Well, I think there's a contemporary application for us in the sense that we need to realize that according to the Scripture, since all things come from God, and were made for us, that there is no activity in itself that is wrong for the believer to engage in unless the scripture specifically prohibits or condemns that activity. There's a good deal of activity that the scripture is very clear is always wrong. Uh, Adultery is always wrong. Lying is always wrong. Slander is always wrong. Talking about someone behind their back is always wrong. Cheating, envy, 
jealousy. Any act that proceeds from those motives is always wrong, and the Scripture is very clear, and we can never quibble about the things that the Scripture makes clear. Those are not items of debate. They're not optional. Every believer is obligated to obey what the Scriptures very clearly teach. But the point that Paul makes here and again in Romans 14 is that where the Scripture is silent, those areas of life are optional for the believer. And there's two kind of mindsets that are in generally in operation in Christendom today. One we might call the legalistic mindset, or what Paul would call the unknowledgeable mindset, or maybe the immature mindset. And that approach to these issues is that uh, nothing is right unless the Scripture says it's right. And on the other hand, there's the perspective of knowledge or maturity, which says that nothing is wrong unless the Scripture specifically declares it to be wrong. And that, I think, is the point that Paul wants us to understand about these things, that they are neutral in and of themselves. They're optional for the believer. And unless the Scripture prohibits us from engaging in these activities, then we're free to do so. Now, we may choose for good reasons, reasons of our own, to abstain from certain of these activities. We may decide to sell our TV because we don't want it around the house. We may decide that because of the influence we get through the theaters that we will not go to the movies. Or we may, we may decide to give up various other activities which the Scripture does not prohibit because for us we need to do so. They may be weak points for us. They may be activities that we cannot engage in at all without getting ourselves too deeply involved, getting too committed, and, and wind up in sin ourselves. I read a quote from C.S. Lewis this last week, which I think states this very succinctly. He's talking about this issue of Christians abstaining from things which uh, are legitimate liberties for the Christian. And Lewis says this, The whole point is that he, that is the Christian, is abstaining for a good reason from something which he does not condemn and which he likes to see other people enjoying. One of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up. That is not the Christian way. An individual Christian may see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons. Marriage, or meat, or beer, or the cinema. But the moment he starts saying these things are bad in themselves, or looking down his nose at other people who do use them, he has taken the wrong turning. Good example of this, I lived uh, with three other guys for one year, and we had one of our roommates, a guy named Mark, was a strict vegetarian. And this, uh, his vegetarianism had started before he met the Lord and uh, continued after he became a Christian because his conscience would not permit him to eat anything that had been killed. So he wouldn't even uh, eat eggs, for example, because uh, a life in his conscience had been sacrificed to make that food available to him. So his conscience would not permit him to eat that. Well, the other three of us had no conscience problems with this. And so we got along very comfortably that year because Mark never once communicated to us the concept that we had to obey the dictates of his conscience. He was aware that this was an issue of his own individual conscience and that it was a stand that he had set for himself. No one other Christian in the world was obligated to live up to the dictates and the standards of his conscience. 
And Paul says, that's the perspective of maturity. It may be mature for us to abstain from certain activities, but what we must not ever do is try to impose that standard on someone else because he stands on his own before his own Lord, as Paul says in Romans 14. Now, I want to say just a couple of words. I realize this is a very sensitive issue, and I, I do not want to make waves, and I don't want to you know, stir up uh, needless controversy, but I do feel one of the most sensitive areas in, in this regard is the use of alcohol. Now, we need to be aware at the outset that the Scripture nowhere condemns the use of alcohol per se. Now, it's very clear that drunkenness is wrong. Drunkenness in every case is wrong. It is always wrong. It is never, ever justifiable for a Christian to be under the control of alcohol. And yet we need to realize that Jesus and the apostles uh, used wine. In fact, when the Lord set up the Lord's Supper, he used wine as one of the two elements in one of the two sacraments that he meant to be binding on the church, meant for the church to practice until he comes again. I think we need to be very careful in this area that we do not set up that abstinence from alcohol as some kind of standard that all Christians should obey. We may, for good reasons, reasons that are perfectly justifiable, and uh, may choose to abstain ourselves. And we should do that. If our conscience will not permit us, then we should not, we should not drink just because the Scripture doesn't say anything about it. And if we do have the freedom here, we need to be very careful that we don't flaunt that liberty before others. Because as Paul will go on to say, love is the is most important ingredient in this whole discussion. Now I say that not because uh, I want to upset any apple carts, but I just want us to be as mature as we can in our thinking about this and, and be as enlightened by the Scripture as we can and live in the light of what the Scripture teaches. Now, Paul says there are two specific dangers of this kind of knowledge. If you are a knowledgeable Christian and you realize that nothing is wrong unless the Scripture says it's wrong, that everything else is optional, then there are two dangers to which you are subject. And the, the bulk of this passage is addressed to those who are knowledgeable Christians. Now, the first danger he details for us in verses 1 to 3, and that is... Knowledge that's not tempered by love very easily can develop a sense of superiority in the knowledgeable Christian and a sense of self-righteousness toward others. He says in verse 1 that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Literally, that knowledge puffs up. You take a little balloon, just a little piece of rubber, not more than an inch long, and you put enough air in that thing, and you just get a big monster balloon take a pin to that thing, pop the air, and that thing's right back down to size. And Paul says knowledge in gray areas is just like that, that if it's not tempered by love, it just inflates a man's sense of importance and his sense of, and his sense of liberty and his, uh, his sense of worth, and he begins to feel superior to other Christians around him who do not exercise certain freedoms. And his attitude is, well, they're just legalistic blue noses. They're still living in the 19th century. They need to get up to date. And I'm not going to worry about them because they're just all hung up and inhibited. And so I'm just going to live my life my way, exercise my freedoms, and just forget about those guys. They're just not worth wasting my time even talking to them about this. And Paul says that's what knowledge will do if it's not tempered with love in this area. It'll just make us arrogant. But he says love is what edifies and that word to edify just means to build up. It just would be used for construction. And Paul says if we're, that God's in the process of building a temple on earth. 
and that you and I are parts of that temple. We're the building materials that go into that temple. And love, Paul says, is the thing that adds one stone to another and builds up and encourages and strengthens and makes that building, makes that temple stronger, makes other people stronger in their faith. And that's the perspective that we're to have, to be loving people. It says in verse 2, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. And this suggests that the knowledgeable Christian can, can run into the danger of thinking that the mark of maturity is knowledge. That the mark of a mature man is the man who knows the Scripture. And yet Paul says if a man's in that position, he has not yet come to know as he ought to know. You know, Dave Roper shared with us that when he studied at, uh, at Berkeley, University of California, that he studied under rabbis who knew much more about the Old Testament than he did. They knew that thing inside and out. They knew it backwards and forwards. They could quote chapter and verse in any part of the Old Testament. And yet those men's hearts were far from God. And that ought to be a warning that knowledge is not equivalent to maturity. See, the mark of maturity in the Christian life is love. It's not how much you know, but it's how much you're loving people, how much you're growing in love. Not that we can do without knowledge, but that's not the equivalent of maturity. Love is what edifies. And Paul says true knowledge in verse 3 is to love God. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. In other words, it's not what you know, and it's not even who you know, but it's who knows you. See, the one who loves God is known by him. The idea there is that you're in relationship with God, that God knows you, that he's known you before you've even begun to love him, that he's entered into relationship with you. And the evidence of that is that you love him, you're concerned about the things he's concerned about, and as 1 John indicates, you love your brother. See, that's the mark of a man who's in relationship with God. Knowledge is not a mark of a man in relationship with God. Love is the true mark of a man in relationship to God. So Paul says the first danger is don't let knowledge uh, produce in you a spirit of superiority, but rather seek to love people. Now, the second problem is down in verses 7 to 12. It says, However, not all men have this knowledge. In other words, that meat sacrificed idols can be eaten. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. Let food fattists be aware of this verse. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So the second danger, Paul says, is that this knowledge, not tempered by love, can lead us to sin, can lead us into sin against our brother and against the Lord. Now notice that the reason that it's sinful for this person to engage, for this weak brother to do that, is that they're accustomed until now to regarding the idol as a real thing. So they have practiced idolatry, they become a Christian, and they're still new in their Christian faith, and so every time they eat meat sacrificed to idols, it still has all the pagan associations it had before they met the Lord. And so when they eat, 
Their conscience is soiled or it's stained, it's spotted. That's what Paul says. In the same way, many young Christians, because they have identified certain activities so closely with their life before they became a Christian, that when they become a Christian, they they feel they need to separate themselves entirely from that whole realm of activities. And see, Paul recognizes that that is the natural tendency of a new believer. That's naturally the thing that a new believer will do. So Paul says we need to make allowance for that and realize that that is what happens and be loving toward these people. And notice, too, how often he uses the word conscience in this passage. So he says this is a matter of conscience. It's not a matter of objective right or wrong. It's a matter of an individual conscience in his relationship with the Lord. And he says that this conscience is weak. Notice how often he uses the word weak in this context. And a weak conscience, in Paul's thought, is a conscience that still needs to be instructed according to the biblical standard. It still needs to be enlightened according to what the scriptures teach about these things. Now, it's interesting. If you run into, if you run into people who have very rigid standards in this regard, they do not regard themselves as weak, as Paul does, but they regard themselves as very strong. They feel that they are the pillars of righteousness in these areas. And Paul says that position of prohibiting certain activities, which the scripture does not prohibit, prohibiting other Christians from engaging in those activities, that is a weak position. Now he says the way in which we sin against our brother in verse 10 is that if he sees us eating in an idol's temple, we sit down and we have a, have a steak in an idol's temple, and a, a weak brother, a brother who's a new Christian, and is just used to associating that idol worship with all kinds of evil in his own life, he sees you doing that, he may be encouraged because he's weak to do the same thing. He may be encouraged to go in and sit down and order himself a tenderloin steak. And Paul's point, if he does that when his conscience is weak, then he'll feel guilty about it. For him, it is sin to do that. For him, it's still to be involved in idolatry. And he can't do that activity without being involved in sin. And notice the words that Paul uses to describe the kind of sin. He says in the end of verse 7 that their conscience is defiled. He says in verse 9 that we are a stumbling block to the weak. You know, we were up last week at uh, Alice Lake. A group of men from the church went up to the Sawtooth to do a little backpacking. And we hiked into Alice Lake. And the slowest parts of that walk where we made the least amount of progress, where there were where there were stones and boulders strewn in the path. And you had to step very carefully because if you didn't, you were liable to stumble. And that's Paul's point here. We can be a stumbling block to weaker brothers in this in this situation. We can actually impede their growth and uh, and uh, get in the way of their growth, slow down their growth in the Lord. He says in verse 11 that your brother is ruined by your activity. If you encourage him to do something that he feels is wrong, then your brother is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. In other words, Christ died to edify and to build up that weak brother. And you, by insisting on exercising your liberties, regardless of the feelings or the conscience of anyone else, by insisting on being able to do what you want to do whenever you want to, you've ruined your brother. It means you've become an enemy of the work that Christ is trying to do in his life. And lastly, he says you wound their conscience when it is weak. When a conscience needs to be nourished and needs to be protected, needs to be loved, needs to be given patience and time to grow, you, by insisting on having things your way, have uh, wounded his conscience. We saw a group of uh, 
YMCA kids going up to Alice Lake. And uh, there was a group of about six or seven of them that were doing just fine. Well, they were just trucking right along. And it was raining that day, but they were just sailing right along. We got to the end. We got another 100 yards down the trail, and there were there was the, the uh, adult trail guide, and then there was one last little backpacker bringing up the rear. And he had no rain gear, no hat, so he was just soaked, just water just pouring off of his head. And he just soaked through to the skin. His pack was too heavy for him. He was smaller than the other boys. And uh, he was wearing tennis shoes, didn't have good equipment. And, uh, boy, that, that kid, I could see, was just an inch from giving up on the whole thing. And Paul says, in a sense, there are Christians that are like that because they're new in the faith. They're, they're weak. And uh, that our responsibility is to be tender to them and not to wound their conscience by simply exercising liberties we feel we have to exercise. Now, the most important point, Paul says here, is that if you do that, if you exercise your liberty, and by doing that you encourage another believer to do something which goes against his conscience, says you sin against Christ. See, that's how serious the issue is. It's not just a, a matter of negligence or insensitivity to your brother, but you've sinned against Christ. So you're involved in pretty heavy-duty stuff, here Paul says. Now, one point I want to make is that to put a stumbling block in, in the way of a weaker brother, Paul makes it clear that to do that means that you encourage him to do something which he feels is wrong. You get him to, invo to involve himself in that activity, and attitude can be such that you say, well, you know, you really shouldn't be all hung up about that. I mean, that really is pretty immature to think that that activity is not right. Why don't you just come along with me and and I'll really liberate you. I'll just set you on your feet here and I'll set you free. You just come with me and we'll get things all squared away in your life and you won't have to be all hung up and inhibited about this again. And then the guy, because of our influence, he regards us as more mature and knowledgeable, and then he does the same thing, but he feels guilty about it. Now that's what it means to, to put a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now it does not mean that we to annoy someone. See, annoying someone or getting someone uptight at you because of the liberties you exercise, that is not putting a stumbling block in their way. Now, when we're with people who do have more rigid standards than we do in these areas, we should be free to give it up for their sake because we love them, because we don't want to annoy someone unnecessarily when we know that that's a sensitive spot for them. Just courtesy and Christian love dictates that we do that. But Paul says that's not the same as putting a stumbling block. And we're under no obligation to conform our own convictions to the consciences of others. That's the point that Paul wants to make. Now, what's Paul's conclusion to this whole affair? Well, his conclusion in verse 13 is that if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. So what Paul is suggesting here is that the position of maturity in this regard is to be willing to forsake any of the liberties that we possess in Christ any time the occasion demands it. See, that's true freedom. Uh, you know, at times I, uh, it, it's important for me to give up the liberty that I have to watch football on television for my wife. And there's nothing wrong, right or wrong, about watching football on TV, but there are times when it is more important for me to yield that liberty for the sake of my wife. And that's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. So anytime the occasion demands it, that's when we are to yield our liberties. Now, this might suggest to some that uh, you, know, you are never to uh, 
do anything that might possibly at some time offend someone. You know, never do anything where someone just might accidentally see you involved in that activity, and so you just better not do anything because uh, they might just, someone accidentally might see you, and they'll, be, they'll get angry or upset, or they may stumble. Now, I think Paul gives us a direction. I just want to flip over to chapter 10 just for one second. Do that with me. To chapter 10, because I think Paul addresses that question in that chapter. Look at verse 25 with me. Paul says about this, Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. But look down at verse 28. But if anyone should say to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. So Paul says, if you have certain liberties in the Lord, not license now, I want to make clear, we're not talking about the freedom to disobey the scripture. And we're not talking about that. What we're talking about bona fide Christian liberties. If you have these, then go ahead and exercise them. Feel free to do so. But when any situation arises at any point where you realize there are good reasons to abstain, then do so because you love the one that you're with. Now, um, see, that's what it means to be free, to be free to give them up. When I went to seminary for the first time, I have a rule, which I still do, that every student uh, is required to wear a coat and tie and, uh, you know, I thought, gee, that is one of the most Mickey Mouse rules I have ever heard in my life. And I really struggled with that in my heart because I said, you know, I talked to my friends, and says, you know, it just doesn't matter what, whether you wear a coat or tie to class. And then I realized about halfway through the year, well, if it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. And it could make any difference whether I have to wear one or not. If I really believe that I'm free not to wear one, then I ought to be free to wear one. See? And that's what Paul is saying we're not really liberated as Christians unless we have the freedom at any point to give it up. See, if we, if we feel like we have to exercise these liberties, regardless of who's trying to crimp our style, then we're not really free. We're just under a different kind of bondage. So the point, just real simply, briefly, to, to the point that Paul wants to make here is that we need to love people. See, that's the whole, that's the whole point he's driving at here, is that it's not knowledge it's not liberty that's fundamental, but it's loving people. And I don't know how uh, some of the stuff that we've said here this morning may have affected you. Maybe some areas we've touched on that are still sensitive for you. And, and uh, I just ask you to be loving toward me in this. And uh, we need to be loving toward others. Others that exercise freedoms that we don't, we need to be loving toward them. Not condemning, not judging but loving and allowing them to exercise the liberties they have. And if we, if we have liberties that our friends don't, we must not feel superior or look down at them, but we must love them. And when we're with them, accommodate ourselves to, to the standards that they hold to. And that's what Paul would have us to do, to be loving and edifying toward one another in this area.